start off with that cheesy ass 90s song it doesn't get much more 90s than that that song by the way is whisper to a scream which plays at the end credits of the movie scream which of course is what i'm going to be talking about so this is let me be frank my new podcast which i hope will open the minds of whoever the hell else happens to listen to this i used to write for a site called justaguide.com run by a couple of good friends of mine, Steve Green, Ryan Hoiser, and it seemed that when I wrote my articles for them, I had a pretty good following. People who actually, you know, read my articles, enjoyed them, so I thought, why the hell not make a podcast? Invested in a new mic to have some voiceover work, or possibly delve into voiceover work, and I figured I'll do a podcast too, what the hell. So many people share their opinions online. Why not share mine? I feel much more enlightened than the average individual when it comes to film and music and all that good stuff. (laughs) In my own mind, at least. So let's get right into it. Scream, 1996. The film was released on December 20th, 1996. I haven't decided if I'm going to release this podcast earlier than that because I'm really excited to get it out to the internet or if I'll release it on the actual 20th anniversary, which of course will be December 20th. Still don't know yet. Whenever you're listening to this, well, the date I suppose will be irrelevant. But So Scream released in 1996, which might seem odd given that it's a horror movie released in the middle of December during Christmas season. It's interesting because at the time, the slasher genre was pretty much considered dead. And what Dimension thought they had with this film was a shot in the heart to the genre. And it turned out to be just exactly that. And the reason they put it out in December, I read, was because they figured that the fan base they were marketing to, which of course is the horror diehards, and there are many of them, the horror genre, has a cult following. They figured, well, you got all these Christmas movies coming out. You got all these non-Christmas movies, these awards contenders, you know, movies that are trying to build themselves up for the Oscars and all that good stuff. Why not put a horror movie into the middle of all that so we can cater to our fan base and maybe we'll expand our fan base. Maybe more people will come to see it if we did our jobs correctly, right? Make a good film. And they made a great film. As a matter of fact, when Scream was released, on December 20th, 1996, the opening weekend, they made about $6 million, which isn't a lot of money, especially today, right? But back then, it wasn't much money. I, th- I believe it finished in fourth place behind movies like Jerry Maguire, which also turns 20 this year, obviously. And it picked up steam as the weeks went on because of word of mouth back in the day. Before the internet and social media, you went and saw a movie, you checked your local paper, which you wanted to go see, you thought it was good, you told all your friends about it. Well, each week, Scream made more and more money, and eventually at the end of its run, by the way, it was in theaters for about eight months, which never happens anymore. I mean, nowadays, because of streaming content, a lot of movies don't even make it to theaters anymore, theatrical releases, but that's, of course, a discussion for a whole other day, cinema and the state of it today. But back then, an eight-month run was pretty damn good, pretty damn good. You knew your film was doing well if you lasted in the theaters for eight months. So let's talk about why Scream is excellent and why it still holds merit today and it stands the test of time. So let's start with the script where every great movie begins or every great stage show begins, right? The script, the screenplay. And the writer of Scream 
is Kevin Williamson, and he was inspired to write this film because of the Gainesville Ripper, in part due to the Gainesville Ripper, who was a killer down in Florida in 1990, stalking girls, murdering them. So Williamson, with all that going on, he was also a huge horror movie fan, big-time Halloween fan, and of course the slasher genres of the 80s that were a result of the success of Halloween, which I can also create another podcast about Halloween and why that's legendary and probably the greatest independent film ever made, if you ask me. But Williamson wanted to do something along those lines. So he writes this script. And the reason it's so brilliant to me is because Scream is its a horror movie. Yes, it's a horror movie. But it's also like a black comedy because it's a self-aware horror movie. And I'm just all those past films, but also poking fun at them. These characters... The main characters are all aware that they're in the middle of a killing spree similar to all these movies that they grew up with, that we, the audience, grew up with. And it's just so genius, and that can really... It could have went wrong in so many directions, but it was handled so well. And the writing is just so spot-on and crisp, and the execution, and, of course, the cast, which leads me to why they were such a crucial part of this. You had... Nev Campbell of Party of Five fame, who was given the leading role. You had Skeet Ulrich, who at the time was called the poor man's Johnny Depp because of how much he resembled Johnny Depp, who, of course, was cast in Wes Craven, the director, the master of horror, rest in peace. He was cast in Craven's film A Nightmare on Elm Street, 1984. That was Johnny Depp's first film, his debut in the industry. So Skeet Ulrich resembled him. He was cast in the movie. Then you had Matthew Lillard, the goofball of the 1990s. That guy is hysterical, man, and he, he is one of the best parts about Scream. He and, of course, Jamie Kennedy, who plays Randy the Film Geek. And Jamie Kennedy went on to do other other work, but it, to me, quite frankly, or no, pun, no pun intended, the, the Scream, the, the Randy Meeks character is Jamie Kennedy's best work ever. It's just... It's so great. I relate to that character so much just because I myself am a film buff, movie buff, cinephile, whatever you want to call it, and I could see myself being that guy in those circumstances, just quoting movies, talking about the rules of movies, you know, that's working at a video store, and that would have been me in the 90s, working at the video store had I been that age in the 90s. (laughs) So this cast, they gelled so beautifully, and... I was reading that Wes Craven was very liberal in letting the cast handle these characters because not only were you know they were they embodying these characters, they were allowed to be themselves and bring themselves to the role more so than a typical character in you know a heavy dramatic script per se. Because as I was saying, this movie is a self-aware parody and also an effective horror movie. It's it's so great. It's it's unbelievable how it worked out so magnificently. And, I mean, the relationship between Neff Campbell and Skeet Ulrich as girlfriend-boyfriend. And, by the way, Kevin Williamson wrote in many tributes to past horror movies, and Wes Craven obviously worked them in while they were filming. And, of course, Skeet Ulrich's character, Billy Loomis, Loomis, of course, the character in Halloween, Dr. Dr. Loomis, Dr. Sam Loomis, that was played by Donald Pleasant's legendary performance, fantastic 
performance. And of course, Dr. Sam Loomis in Halloween itself is an homage to Hitchcock's Psycho because Sam Loomis is one of the characters who goes searching for Marion Crane. So you got the horror movie Bloodline showing up in Scream. And there was also several other dialogue references to Halloween. There's one point where Tatum, which is played by Rose McGowan, she's discussing with Neff Campbell on the porch. And she's like, oh, you sound like you're in some Wes Carpenter flick. Of course, that's a, a nod to Wes Craven, their director, and John Carpenter, the director of Halloween. And then if there's, <laughs> there's one point in the movie where Henry Winkler, who's playing the principal, which to this day is... <laughs> Oh, goddamn funny. The Fonz is the principal. He's he's in his office after school's out, and he's paranoid. He's playing with the Scream Killer costume, the ghost face costume, and he, he hears something, so he starts freaking out, and he's opening doors, and he's looking around, and he says something like, oh, you goddamn fucking kids, or something along those lines, and there's a janitor in the hallway who says, well, what'd you say to him? And he's like, no, not you, Fred. And, of course, this janitor's wearing a scuzzy fedora and a red and green sweater. Obviously, a little nod to Freddy Krueger and Nightmare on Elm Street. Also, Wes Craven horror flick. I just thought it was so awesome that while they're making this fantastic horror film, they're just making these lovely nods to everything that came before them, paying their respects. It was so awesome. Now, let's talk about the film itself, the plot, right? So... Oh, actually, well, I guess I should before we transition into the plot. Let's talk about a couple other cast members who are crucial to the film. Almost forgot them. How dare I? Drew Barrymore at the beginning of the movie. She's she's in the 12-minute opening scene, which is sensational, by the way. And interestingly enough, Drew Barrymore was supposed to play the Neff Campbell role. She was supposed to be the lead. But something came up scheduling conflict she couldn't do it but she was like I still want to be a part of this that was the whole reason Wes Craven came on to direct this this script so she took the role at the beginning I forget her name uh, I think her name's Casey yeah Casey she takes that role and of course that sets the stage for the the entire movie I mean it just opens with the phone Regan and Let's talk about the most pivotal character in the entire film, who's just a voice. Ladies and gentlemen, just a voice, just like I am now, right? Roger Jackson, the voiceover actor who provides the voice for the killer when he's on the phone with his potential victims. This, without question, is the heart and soul, the backbone of the Scream film and the entire Scream franchise. That voice is so iconic. This, I mean, this is just something else. That Roger Jackson, man, that voice is just, oh, talk about so potent and so creepy, but at the same time, smooth and sly. I mean, it's just so awesome. I mean, I, I can remember being a kid and I wanted to, I wanted to have that voice. <laughs> I remember everybody was going around trying to buy the voice changers, and they were just shitty replicas. I mean, they couldn't actually make your voice sound like Roger Jackson, but everybody was buying them, man. And I also found it fascinating that when they were filming the sequences with Roger Jackson on the phone, he was truly on the phone with the actors as they were filming. They had originally thought about just having the actors, you know, holding the phone and not having anybody on the other line, and then in post-production, they would dub in Roger's voice, or or, or they were going to have Roger on the phone with the actors like they ended up doing, but then they were going to dub in another voice after pro, in post-production, which 
thank God they didn't do because Roger Jackson's voice, as I said, it's, God, it's the soul of that movie. So he's actually on the phone with the actors as you're watching those scenes be played out, which is really, really cool to me, especially as an actor, because that is something that I would, I would be so psyched for. Like if my director told me, hey, Frank, you're gonna, you're gonna have, uh, you're gonna have Roger on the phone with you. We're not gonna have you fake it and be like, yo, fuck yeah, man. That's that's what I'm talking about. So the opening of the film. Let's get right into it. Let's break it down. Twelve minutes long. The opening scene is. It starts with Drew Barrymore. She answers the phone, and you got Roger Jackson. Who is this? You know, all that good stuff. And, you know, he's setting her up, and it's it's awesome how it starts as playful, you know, like curious, like, oh, wrong number. Who, who is this? You know, what's going on? And then it just quickly, like that, turns. And I loved that, again, they work in the horror movies into the plot. The, the killer on the phone is talking about you know, what's your favorite scary movie? What do you like? Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween. Oh, yeah, cool, cool. And then as the tension rises and she finds out that this isn't some sort of joke, this is a serious matter at hand, he gets into the, you know, let's play a game. With, you know, he starts giving her the trivia questions. And I thought it was so, so appropriate that the question he asks her before, you know, he barges into the house to take her out. He's like, name the killer on Friday the 13th. And she says, oh, Jason, Jason Voorhees. Oh, that's the wrong answer. <laughs> it's so great because, of course, if you watch the original Friday the 13th, Jason Voorhees is not the killer. His mother, Pamela Voorhees, is the killer. Jason comes up in the sequel, of course, and then they made 13 friggin' movies out of that. They remade it to 2009. They're remaking it again, of course, because why wouldn't they remake it? Remakes, my God. That's, a, that's another discussion for a whole other podcast another day, right? the state of Hollywood today with their remakes and everything. So he barges into the house. He eventually gets Drew Barrymore, and then he strings her from the tree, which is just a horrifying image, but talk about effective. I mean, my God. And then one of the best scenes in the movie when all the main characters are sitting around the fountain. And this was just a great demonstration of the camaraderie that this cast seemed to have with each other because a cast is so crucial to anything a play a film you know whatever you're doing the cast is critical I mean everybody knows that and these actors just seemed to be enjoying what they were doing so much and that's what you that's what you dream as as an actor getting cast in a project with a fantastic script you get a great director on board. He casts the film perfectly or the, the, the play perfectly, whatever it is you're doing. And you mesh with these people so well that you develop these friendships that eventually sometimes lead to lifelong friendships. And it's it's really beautiful. And you just you get that, at least I do, as you're watching these actors interact and scream, especially that fountain scene. They're just so loose you know, they're playing high school kids, and you totally buy with their high school kids, even though they're all in their, you know, early 20s, early to mid-20s. There's the there's the, <laughs> the everlasting Hollywood paradox, right? High school kids, but with actors in their 20s. It's ironic because, you know, people make fun of that and say, well, why not cast high school kids? You know, why not cast high school-aged actors? But, well, a lot of actors that age are still in high school. They're not actually, you know, full-blown actors yet, and... I once was talking to an actor friend, and we were discussing how, really, 
it makes sense to cast actors in their early to mid-20s who still appear with that, that baby face, that high school age, because they've lived it. They know what it truly is, so they can, they can embody that time in their life once again and whatever these characters are that they have to portray. Whereas if you brought somebody in, a high school-aged actor who was in the thick of it, who, who was living it, it might, you might say, well, yeah, they're living it, so that makes perfect sense. But no, because you don't really fully grasp that time in your life until afterwards, until after it's all said and done. So I think that's why that whole, well, why would you cast actors in their 20s to play actors in their teenage years has always, has always worked. So, but just to talk about that scene in particular, I mean, they're goofing off, they're talking about, oh, who do you think it could have been? My God, it was horrible. And of course, Jamie Kennedy, the first scene he's in as Randy Meeks, he's going back and forth with Stu, of course, is played by Matthew Lillard, and they're just, it's so, it's... It's so fantastic. I mean, they're just, oh, to gut your ass, kid, when they're talking to each other. And he's like, ah, oh, did you, uh, did you find your Spain? Because I heard they found her Spain next to her liver in the mail. But then they're just making light of this ghastly murder of one of their classmates. It's just ridiculous. But at the same time, you can sense their paranoia that the fact that they're right in the middle of this thing. Also, of course, still playing into the tongue-in-cheek, self-aware comedy factor of this film. It's just so awesome. And, and, of course, the movie goes on. And, oh, how did I forget to mention these two when I was talking about cast as well? Come on now, Frank. David Arquette, who, to me, I still think that Dewey, Officer Dewey, is, like, the face of his career. Everybody will always remember David Arquette as Officer Dewey. And, of course, you had his love interest, one of the central characters, the central supporting characters of Scream, Gail Weathers, played by Courtney Cox. They would eventually marry each other, of course, but divorced, unfortunately, a few years ago. Another fascinating quip, or piece of trivia, I should say, about the Gail Weathers character is Courtney Cox was not the choice to play that role, but she, she wanted it so badly, she auditioned for it, and she pleaded with the, the team and the studio because at the time she was obviously Monica on Friends in 1996 just as Friends was really starting to become a juggernaut and a phenomena and she was becoming known as her character Monica the sweet natured you know the ugly duckling story now she's beautiful and she's the she's the girl everybody wants to be friend you know and she wanted to play against that she wanted to be you know that bitchy character with with ferocity and do whatever I need to do to succeed with no regards to anybody else. I got my goals, and I'm going to get it done. Whatever needs to be done, I'm going to do it. And that's who Gail Weathers is, a strong female character who's all about clawing her way to the top. And she played it so well. I mean, you watch that movie, and when she's interacting with, with Sydney, Neff Campbell's character, I, you can just feel the tension, and it makes me so uncomfortable when they're confronting one another about Sydney's mom's murder and how Gail Weathers covered it with just no compassion at all. She just treated it as a story as opposed to treating it as a delicate matter. This woman who had a daughter, and, I mean, you you could just, oh, got it. Ooh, you, you, you just, you shake while you're watching it. Like, oh, man, you nasty goddamn woman you got no concern for this poor girl and then of course the scene outside of the police station where Sydney tries to sneak out the back and then the reporters hound her 
Neff Campbell, she turns and she says, oh, yeah, you're just doing your job, right, Gail? Oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah, your book, your book. Oh, I'll send you a copy. And bam, she pops her. <laughs> it's just so great. But, and the film continues to play out. And you don't know, it does such a great job of making you guess and wonder who it is and what's going on here. And there's another great uh, scene in the movie where Neff Campbell's home alone and she gets a phone call after she wakes up from a nap and it's the killer, which of course she doesn't know that yet. She just thinks it's Randy doing this little sexy voice thing. And then she says something like, oh, you gave yourself up, Randy. Goodbye. And he says, oh, maybe that's because I'm not Randy. And then she's like, oh, what's going on here? And then, of course, that sets off her interaction with this person she knows to be uh, somebody who's not good news. Something's going wrong here. <laughs> and then the killer reveals himself in her house, and he attacks her. Now, I guess I should talk about the costume at this point because you got the long black cloak, and you got the which is the ghost face costume, and then the, 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 the scream mask, the ghost face mask which, of course, is based off of the famous picture, or the famous portrait, the scream picture, of the gentleman screaming with his hands on his head. So that that costume, man, I remember when that movie came out in 1996. I was six years old, and I see I grew up on horror movies, so that's why I kind of wanted to start this podcast with talking about an iconic horror movie and one that really helped my really aided in my love of cinema. Of course, Halloween was the movie that started it all. But anyways, as I was saying, I can remember in 1996 when that movie came out, that Halloween, every single person and their cousin and their mother and their father, everybody dressed up as the ghost face killer. You could not look around at any block without seeing at least one or two people dressed as the scream killer. It was just, <laughs> it became so cliche. Everybody dressed up as scream. And then they came up with like the variant masks, like the masks that had the blood that poured down them. And then the, the glow in the dark mask and like the different colored scream masks. They just, they came up with any way to make them a little different and make money off of it, which you can't blame them. But yeah, everybody wanted to dress up as that guy. And this really is a great costume. It was an awesome costume. And, Here's the best part to me about Scream. The final third of the movie takes place at Stu's house. The big time party at the end of the movie. And it's about the, it's 40 minutes long. It's the last third of the movie. And it's just so well done. It's so spectacularly shot. And I was reading that, that sequence took the cast and crew 20 to 22 days, I believe the time window was, to, to film that because they had to shoot when the sun went down, of course, at nighttime, but then they had to stop shooting when the sun came up because that scene, that whole sequence, that whole third act takes place at night, all during the same night. So after it was over, I guess the whole cast and crew was given shirts that said, I survived scene 118, which is what the scene was while they were shooting. And... <laughs> They used to joke, it said that they referred to it as the longest night in horror history. <laughs> and see, that's something that, me as an actor, that's something you hope for one day. Like I hope that I can be part of an experience and a project with something like that. Because that just, it, like like a family. You're, you're shooting a movie for 
20s days just on one scene in one location, it becomes like a home. And these people become your family, something that lasts for your entire life and you can look back on and just feel giddy about and nostalgic. And I mean, I get it from just watching the movie. I can only imagine what the actors and the crew get from being a part of it. But the movie sets up there, right? You're at Stu's house. Everybody shows up. And I think the best scene in the entire movie is when Randy, Stu, and a crew are around the TV and they're watching Halloween. And the whole party sequence of that movie reminds me of my high school days. My buddy, my good friend, who used to have the party house, his basement was the spot, even though his whole house was open, but his basement was the spot, and it had several different areas. It had the TV area where everybody sat and watched whatever sporting event was going on. Then you had the beer pong area, the card game area where people were playing drinking games, Just and then the... the the standing room only area where people just congregated and talked. And that scene made me feel like like those times for me in high school. But while they're watching the movie, Randy starts going off about the rules of horror movies. You need to abide by certain rules to survive in a horror movie. And of course, this plays into, you know, what's going on in Scream itself. Of course, there's the one scene. I'm sorry, I don't mean to jump around again, but when Nev Campbell She's at home alone, and that one scene I was just talking about earlier, she's on the phone with a killer, and he's like, oh, why don't you like watching horror movies? And she's like, oh, because it's insulting. I can't stand that shit. It's always some big-breasted bimbo who's running up her stairs to trap herself instead of just running out her front door. And when the killer appears, Nev Campbell doesn't run out the front door. She, What does she do? She runs right up the stairs to lock herself in her room to corner herself. It's, it's just little things like that that make this movie so great. But anyways, back to the scene in the house. So Randy starts going off, oh, what, you don't know the rules? And he stands up and he says, the first rule, you can never have sex. And they all go, oh, boo, boo. And they're throwing shit at him. And he goes, the second rule, you can never drink and do drugs. And, of course, they're all drinking (laughs) at this point. And then the camera cuts to Stu and the other kids, and they all go, yeah. And they they take sips from their beers. And that's just so, like, in the the moment, like, like, it had to be improvised, and even if it wasn't, I mean, it's just it's just one of those moments you buy into, like, yeah, that that's exactly, that that was me, that would be me, this is so real, and it's just so goddamn funny, because that bit is all about the editing, because as soon as Randy says that, the camera cuts right back, you know, the film cuts right back to them, and that's, that's, that's why it's so funny, which just goes to show you how crucial it is for every member to be up to speed in filmmaking. Filmmaking is a gigantic puzzle and there are so many players and pieces in it and an editor is a very important member and that just goes to show you how editing helped that one part of the movie. And then of course the final rule he says, you can never say I'll be right back because you won't be right back. And then as soon as he's done explaining, Stu gets up and says, yeah, I'm going to get another beer. You want one? Yeah, sure. I'll be right back. <laughs> and of course they all start laughing and he just... He, he slithers back into his kitchen. and that, that That's my favorite part of the whole movie. That's just so fucking great. Matthew Lillard being Matthew Lillard, just reveling in his role. All those kids just enjoying what they're doing. It's so great. And you know what? With that being said, I'm actually going to go get my, since I'm in charge here, I'm going to go get myself a drink. Maybe you want to go get yourself one. And I'll be right back. Get another beer. You want one? Yeah, sure. I'll be right back. Oh! <laughs> 
see, you push the laws and you end up dead. Okay, I'll see you in the kitchen with a knife. I had to do it. It's great. It's great. It works. It works. Don't tell me it doesn't. So let's continue on and get to the end of this here. So the party scene scream, the climax. Now I thought another genius move on the part of this creative team was the revelation that there were in fact two killers. I mean, it makes it look like it's Billy, and then it turns out it's not in the middle of the movie when he's held in the police station and the killer calls Sydney while she's at Dewey's house, so it couldn't have been Billy. And of course, we find out that it is in fact Billy working in tandem with his good old buddy Stu. And that just really, like I said, it, it works wonderfully. You got two, two, two people... It makes it more believable that two people working together would be pull, be able to pull off such heinous crimes and such a plot as opposed to one guy doing everything on his own. And it, you didn't know who it was going to be. You really didn't know who it was going to be. Just like Randy said, everybody's a suspect. So Billy reveals himself after it, he makes himself look like he was stabbed by the killer, which, of course, is Stu in the costume at that point. And then he comes down the stairs. He He stumbles down the stairs turns and said we all go a little mad sometimes and then of course again quote from psycho anthony perkins right taking everything back to the the big dogs the old school movies and then he gives his motive as to why he wanted to kill sydney he went on this killing spree him and Stu killed sydney's mother because she was having an affair with billy's mom and it ruined his family and obviously billy's demented i mean he's pushed to the brink of insanity and, of course, we learn later in the sequels just what pushed him over the edge or who pushed him over the edge. Won't spoil that for you, right? Because you probably haven't seen Scream 3. It's only 15 years old or 16 years old. But anyways, so Billy, obviously, scary, frightening character, sociopath. But Stu, you might be able to argue, is the more terrifying of the two because he just joins along for the fun of it. Like Billy's got a revenge motive. He's crushed. He, he's been destroyed on the inside, and he snaps. But Stu, Stu just joins in because he fucking can, apparently. Like, Billy comes to him with this plan, let's go kill people? Fuck yeah, let's kill people. Like, really? Like, I mean, not, not saying that Billy, you know, I mean, he had his reasons for killing people. Not that it ever justifies murder, but you can understand why he wanted back at Sydney. Whereas Stu, it's like, dude... <laughs> He's going to go around stabbing people because you can? Because your friend asked you to join? Like, that's even more horrifying. And that shit, unfortunately, is played out at points in society, as we've seen. Terrifying. But then you got the whole confrontation sequence in the kitchen. And really, that interaction between Skeet and Lillard is just incredible. I mean, they're, they're, they're rattling lines off. They're, they're stabbing each other to make it look like, you know, they were the victims. They're going to frame Sydney's dad. Oh, man. I mean, and that, that's really sick when they're stabbing each other, too, man. I mean, God. And then, of course, they got the, that's, all the people I talk to who are fans of Scream and love that movie, love that final scene because Stu's arguing about, my mom and dad are going to be so mad at me. Hit me with the phone, dick. And that's really just the brilliance of Matthew Lillard because I was reading that all that was pretty much improvised. He was just having all these genuine reactions as they're finally putting their master plan into the light and watching it all come to a close. And then Gail Weathers obviously shows up. 
she thinks she's going to save the day. Billy takes the gun from her, but then that gives Sidney the chance to run away. And then she lights his fuse by calling him a pansy-ass mama's boy. She sneaks up on him. She stabs him. She kills Stu, of course. <laughs> That's another thing. I always had a thing for you, Sid, and then she drops the TV set on him. <laughs> uh, hell of a death, right? Hell of a death. And then Billy, one final charge. He gets shot, and then another just oh-so-appropriate callback to horror movies. Jamie Kennedy stands over Billy with Sidney and Gale, and he says, the killer always comes back for one last scare when you think he's dead, and then Billy rises up, ah! and then Sidney just shoots him right in the head. See you later. Thanks for playing. That's the end of that. In the final sequence, I mean, talk about beauty. The tracking shot of when the camera is panning up as Gail Weathers does her final report. Several more teens are dead as it all comes to an end. And this, these strings of murders, the mystery is over. The camera pans up to the sky the, at dawn. Just this, this lovely scenic sunset and it just captures the whole film right in that shot. And it's got this song playing over it by Moby. And the song is, I forget what the, First Cool Hive, First Cool Hive. I had to go to the glasses there, like my guy Kornheiser on the paper, I got redundant. I had to go to the glasses, First Cool Hive by Moby. And it's just so fitting. I don't know what it is about that song, but it just works. And to me, see, because there is no more beautiful marriage in life than cinema and music. And this is a perfect example because that Moby song, First Cool Hive, just encapsulates everything in one final moment. And when you watch it, like I just did recently, 20 years later, it just shoots nostalgia into you and it just takes you back to when you were a kid. And it just does so much, not only for the film, but for you. Just really well done. And ironically enough, Moby, apparently he was like the soundtrack of 90s movies because the Climax of Heat, one of my all-time favorite flicks, which I wrote about on Just a Guy, www.justaguy.us, some years ago. I wrote about how the soundtrack to that is just exceptional, and the final song that plays in the Climax of Heat with De Niro and Pacino is a Moby song. God, moving over the trace of the waters, I believe it's called, or over the face of the waters. And, of course, Lil Wayne sampled that song for one of his own songs when I was in high school, so some people... If you look it up, you'll recognize it from that little Wayne song. You probably know, but screw that. You got to go back and listen to the movie. So you more, no, more importantly, you got to go back. You got to watch Heat. If you haven't watched Heat and listen to that song's inclusion in that film. You know what else I loved about Scream that they don't do anymore that I've often talked about? Movies need to utilize the image ending credits. And what I mean by that is the montage of pictures of the cast of actors as opposed to just text scrawl. Scream does it. They got the pictures of the actors like Nev Campbell and Skeet Ulrich with their names across the screen as they're showing them. Top Gun did it. A couple other movies do it, but I really think cinema should do that more often. It's just a, it's a nice touch to highlight the actors and to, to really give you one last familiarization with who you just spent your couple of hours with. And it really just works even better as the years go on and you go back and watch the movie. That That's an effect I think more movies should do. And of course, Scream would go on to be a successful franchise. They had Scream 2 the following year, 
And then they had Scream 3 in 2000, which tied up you know, loose ends and brought everything to a close. The trilogy, of course. Pretty much all the major players who weren't killed returned throughout the series. And they were they were also really well done. I mean, the sequels are cool. And then when they first came out, people weren't too excited about them. But then when you really look back, right as time goes on, you can appreciate things for what they really are. And those sequels did fit really well, of course. In Scream 2, you had Timothy Olfont, who's revealed to be the killer, as Mickey. You had a Jerry O'Connell f- appearance in that movie as Sidney's boyfriend. You had Billy's mom. The great Laurie Metcalf, Chicago Pride, right? The founder of Steppenwolf Theater, baby. And then you had Scream 3, Roman, who ties back to the original Scream and why Billy and Stu did what they did in the first place. And then, of course, they had Scream 4 in 2011, which I was really looking forward to. And it wasn't bad, but it wasn't really necessary. And they they were talking about making a 5 and a 6 a whole new trilogy, but, of course, Wes Craven passed away last year, so who knows if they'll do that. They probably won't because they got that new Scream TV series on MTV. I have not seen that, so I can't comment on it. Therefore, I won't comment on it, obviously. But I do have no interest in watching it. That's why I haven't seen it. But, yeah, Scream 2 and 3, they they kept with the themes. They were self-aware sequels within the horror universe. They were making fun of sequels. I, I gotta mention this, Scary Movie in 2000. Oh, yeah. See, Scary Movie was the working title of Scream. So it was only appropriate that the genius brothers Marlon Waynes and Sean Waynes came up with Scream, or excuse me, came up with Scary Movie, the parody of Scream and all the other countless 90s slasher movie ripoffs that followed because of the success of Scream and the revitalization of the slasher genre. I know what you did last summer, Urban Legend. All that stuff, right? All that. I'm not going to say all that good stuff because I don't think any of it was really that good. But Scary Movie was just, oh man, hysterical. Absolutely hysterical. And that spawned a franchise of its own. They had, what, five of those? The last one came out in 2013 a few years back, which is just crazy to think. But the ones with the Waynes brothers are the best. That's the cream of the crop. That stuff was just great. So that pretty much wraps up this podcast here. Thank you for letting me be frank about the subject, the film Scream. Yeah, I hope people listened. I hope you enjoyed. I hope you learned. I hope you looked at the film from a different perspective that you might not have before. And I hope as I release future podcasts, whatever I am talking about, whatever I am sharing, I sincerely hope that you are able to open your mind and to look at these subjects in a completely new light will have you thinking about them for day for days coming and really make you think in a way that you haven't thought about these subjects before thanks again i will be back shortly with a new podcast hopefully more to come i hope this can continue on thanks for listening so this is frank menelicino signing off like i'm gail weathers signing off right <laughs> had to do it oh, good one good one good one yeah whatever But I am going to leave you with the song by Moby First Cool Hive that played at the end of Scream. I'm going to play it for the end of this podcast. See you later.